Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode, our second of the new year. Apologies for a later recording than desired. I don't know what is going on with my head, y'all. I spent the latter portion of December and early, earliest days of January fighting a tooth and then jaw infection. Everything was going great, cleared up, cleaned up, fantastic. And I woke up, I think Friday morning, Saturday morning, I don't remember when, but not too long ago, with some form of inner ear infection and my head spinning like I had consumed way too much alcohol, but I hadn't. And all of a sudden I'm stumbling around like a kind of sort of drunk guy just to do basic things. So between my equilibrium being off and my brain feeling like it's in a pretty solid haze, uh, yeah, so I apologize. Going to try and do the uh, Monday evening recordings whenever possible, but genuinely just kind of getting to a place right now where, I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit coherent. I want to say a big thank you as always to you for the great questions y'all have sent in put together by our fine friend Jim Kaiser all those questions and everything we do here on the podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires fine fine folks as well they power the road to Indy with their mighty fine tires their road tires as well something that more and more of you are buying and uh, sending notes saying, hey, want to say thank you to Cooper Tires for supporting your podcast there, Pruitt. And so we bought some Coopers for our road vehicle. Uh, our friends at the Justice Brothers as well love the Justice family, the support that they have given me for a really long time. And now in podcast form, their automotive chemicals and lubricants found quite frequently in motor racing paddocks, under tents, in garages, could be the Indy cars uh, being used on them. Could be sports cars, Sprint, NASCAR, you name it. They've been around forever. And then finally, TorontoMotorsports.com, motor racing memorabilia. Lots of Indy car stuff. T-shirts, stickers, uh, scale models, uh, all manner of stuff. Pay a visit to TorontoMotorsports.com. Get some good stuff from our pal Derek Koska. couple quick things to mention before we get rolling. Decided it was time to simplify my life a little bit and come up with a single place for those of you who might want to join the listener group to the podcast that has come together on its own named the Prue Day, P-R-U-E, part of my last name and the word day, D-A-Y, uh, modeled that name they did after my favorite WWE tag team, the New Day, which rocks. And so decided instead of having you DM me or find me wherever on social media, let's just come up with a single email address. So I'm not part of the Prue Day, but the fine folks who do look after it, who do bench racing, check in with each other on a daily basis, have a lot of fun, support one another. Like it's just this really cool uh, collective of more than a hundred members now figured, Hey, if you want to join, you want to have a new family, uh, make some new friends and have fun here. Send an email to prudayrocks at gmail.com. P-R-U-E-D-A-Y-R-O-C-K-S. Prudayrocks at gmail.com. 
And it could be Cassie Johnston, could be John Wojnar, could be Ryan Terpstra, could be Chris Ward, could be a variety of folks who might pick up your email and get you inducted into the group, and off you go. Mention Chris Ward. Oh, our friend Chris, member of the Prude, huge IndyCar fan, huge racing fan in general, big scare this week, and he sent a really beautiful note just saying how thankful he was for the Prude and to have the Prude as a group of friends, many if not most he's never met in com- uh, in, in person, but those that he interacts with on a daily basis, uh, he and his wife found that their uh, their daughter, uh, their baby girl, uh, Fiona, had a really serious medical issue crop up. And talk about panic time. Talk about, holy cow, rushing to the ER and whatnot. And Chris just sent through a little note expressing how appreciative he was of his fellow Prude members because he uh, mentioned to them on the group chat that they do uh, of this emergency and all of a sudden it is a tidal wave of prayers and good wishes and love and upliftment and yeah we all come here for IndyCar sports cars or whatever we do in the podcast but I do love the fact that a really amazing and growing group of fans and listeners have come together under the Prude group that they've formed and look after each other. So that's another thing, too, that I love about this. We have folks who really do come to care. It's a club, it's a group, it's a whatever you want. Uh, it's just a bunch of racing fans, particularly IndyCar, who uh, look after each other. And so uh, Chris mentioned that, uh, told him that uh, I'd like to, share that little story because they're also looking for more prayers. So if you happen to be a person of faith, uh, Chris Ward, he and his wife, their daughter, Fiona, they could use your prayers. So believe things are all going to be heading in the right direction, happy and positive direction for them. But uh, some extra prayers certainly would not be uh, a bad thing. Uh, What else can I tell you? Lots going on right now. I hope to distill a lot of those things in a column on Racer by Thursday morning, which might be when you are listening to this. And yeah, way behind on all the stories that I need to put together in the midst of doing, I think, about seven or eight stories for the next issue of Racer Magazine, which comes out in about two weeks. So it's one of those deals where between my head being mush because of a ear in, inner ear infection the need to do magazine stuff, and also the daily print stuff for racer.com. Scrambling a little bit to stay on top of things, y'all. So with all that said, with prudayrocks at gmail.com shared with you, I think what we're going to do is dive right into your Q&A. Also made a slight modification from last week's show, the very first of the new year, where I had new intro music and then different in new outro music i've just gone all in with this what i love this little kind of surf rock dick dale-esque uh music bed as now the new intro and outro so give that a whirl for the year and who knows if i really love it it might stay for 2023 as well so that's the little marker for me to hit 
come back to our little music bed to warm us up here get us ready for your q and a gonna try to do a little bit of a fast forward episode as much as i can because y'all sent in a heck a bunch of questions and that's a super positive thing i want to get to as many as i can so we're going to kick things off with daniel ingleton mp when's the next planned on track testing action for a team is there going to be any series-wide open testing this year uh yes middle of february um should have had this open before we started recording but as i recall daniel i think it's something like february 14 15 at sebring and just about every single team is indeed going to be there Uh, i did put that in a story on racer that went up last weekend i think saturday maybe it might have gone up so uh, i would check there we do have uh what group test uh, kind of a, a large scale official series test everything that's happening before the season starts at st petersburg at the end of february by the way all of those tests are all private tests uh the first ims indycar you name it official series test it's going to be i believe april 20th that'll be the uh the indy open test where Right now, half the field's entered, but the way these things work is you always get a whole bunch more of folks that uh, sign on there. So yeah, uh, February 14 and 15 would be the next that's coming up if we're talking large scale. Uh, I believe the Foyt team in what Penske are meant to head to Sebring next week for a one-day test, kind of a uh, driver valuation test. Uh, but if we're talking serious numbers of cars going, uh, that'd be the middle of February. The w- test that we just had on Monday kicked off with two cars from Meyer Shank and one from Ray Hallerman Lanigan. You might have seen in the story I did with Christian Lungard, and I think that kid is going to be a beast to deal with this year. Uh, Christian was one tenth off of Simon Pagano, who was fastest on his uh, Meyer Shank Racing testing driving debut. I still need to catch up with Simon. Apparently, uh, he left his phone on top of his car and then drove off, and uh, he had to get a new phone. So uh, I need to try and get a hold of him and uh, talk about how things went, maybe do a little story there. So that's what I can share with you here. There's plenty more tests on the books right now, March, April, May, blah, 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 but uh, really going to focus on what's happening before St. Pete because it's pretty common for things after the first race of the year from a testing standpoint to get shuffled a little bit. This gets canceled, this gets moved, etc., etc. We're going to, where are we going next? Ben Cohen. Uh, let's see. He says, with that article on testing, can you expand on why teams wouldn't want to test um, more prior to the start of the season uh, instead of, say, testing in season? As I understand that because of weather, they can't test at many of the tracks the series run on uh, during the winter, but there's got to be more options than Sebring, right? Uh, says, cheers to hopefully seeing you at a track later this year. Thanks, Ben. Awesome question. A little bit surprised, too, as to why not seeing some of the more adventurous testing plans that we saw last year. 
uh, leading into the 2021 season. In particular, some teams heading out to one of my home tracks here at Laguna Seca, knowing that natural terrain road course, not a crazy amount of grip. There are a decent number of road courses where you could say fit that bill closely. Uh, and also knowing that uh, those are some of the closing races of the year, say the Portlands and uh, Laguna's. Hey, they sure looked smart committing uh, some of their test days to going there to brush up, to learn, to hopefully be fully prepared to kick butt at the end of the season. Uh, some of the teams that did not do that, that did not come out and test, definitely struggled a little bit. So not seeing that right now. For those that I've asked, because I did ask this of a couple of teams, they really said, right now we are trying to be a bit miserly with the, what is it, four uh, private test days that they have. I think if I had a, an overall general answer to this from what I've gotten from a not all, but a number of teams, it's the, let's get into the season, see how it goes before we commit some of those days like we might have before the start of the season. Let's actually get into it a little bit. Sebring's always going to be great to learn, to develop some young drivers, et cetera, et cetera. It's always going to be a, a strong and safe place to test. Can apply that at St. Pete, at Long Beach, those being the two opening uh, road or street course races, those being streets. Obviously, Barber comes in after that. I think that's a pretty sound approach knowing the way the calendar is flowing right now. And if you look at who's doing what testing when, it's pretty much Sebring to prepare for street courses. And then there's some uh, folks that'll be testing at Texas to prepare for the uh, Texas Motor Speedway event. So I think that's just more the feel that I've gotten. And as some teams might find that they have a deficiency, right? Some of their off-season R&D plans to make gains here or there. Instead of burning up a few too many test days before the season, I think what we might be seeing is let's get in and get a real feel and then use those test days as a real as-needed basis. Let's go to Gabe Argenta once again. As Marshall, we saw several tests between uh, checkered flags at Long Beach and New Year's. Do these tests count towards the team's 2022 test days? they saving some for the postseason? Uh, I don't know if I recall seeing a ton of tests, uh, Gabe, but I do know that in many instances, those were driver evaluation tests, uh, rookie-ish driver type tests. Those are a bit of an outlier to the standard same amount of private test days that all teams get. So, um, yeah, I think a little bit of an outlier there. Ed Joris said, first, I love the idea of racer.com publishing an IndyCar testing schedule. Thanks, man. Uh, I've written quite a few of those before, so I'm glad you love the idea. Uh, he says, any chance we could get IndyCar or the teams to report times publicly for all tests? F1's been doing this for many years, and it does not seem to hurt any of the F1 stakeholders. Yeah, a little bit of a, of a different thing here, though, Ed, where if we're talking about F1 testing, tends to be a fairly organized thing through the FIA. Not saying that every single test that takes place in F1 is indeed a large official test, but these tend to be highly coordinated events more often than not. 
most of what we're talking about here with private test days? Absolutely not. Absolutely nothing to do with IndyCar, although they will send one or maybe two officials to the test. Um, these are indeed private days. And it was once a significant battle to get testing information, end-of-day lap times. Uh, that's become less of a fight in the last year or two and become easier also one of the reasons why you've probably seen me write more hey a couple people went testing here this is how it went times are totally unofficial and often lacking full context right in the uh the interview that i did with christian lungard monday uh, he mentioned that for example uh, he was a tenth off of pagano rain ended up halting the test prematurely at about four o'clock instead of going to five just before the rain hit, Pagano was able to go out and do a new tire run, which would produce a faster lap time. End of day as things are cooling down a bit, etc. like optimal conditions. And in that scenario, he was able to go to P1 a tenth faster than the Ray Hall Adam and Lanigan rookie. I appreciate context like that because while it doesn't mean Pagano didn't have speed, it does mean that if Lundgaard, if they were able to get him out to do the same thing, it's very likely he would have been the fastest. But we don't always know if teams use push to pass to set their fastest laps. That happens frequently during private tests. Bit of a, uh, uh, a PR lap, as it's called. Bit of a showy stunt. Granted, and this is a thing I ask teams to do on a regular basis as well, hey, could you please do a push to pass run? Could everybody do one? So at least we can say, hey, if so-and-so's fastest, there's no question as to whether they did that with the benefit of an extra 40 or 50 horsepower. Like, if everybody does it, then at least no one can complain, oh, but see, we would have been faster, but uh, everyone else tried to game the system and do PR laps and blah, blah, blah. Like, no, you do it too. That way we're all clear. So with all that being said, Ed, uh not many tests get done uh, without uh, me receiving lap times. Again, unofficial lap times. Didn't write anything dedicated about Monday's test, for example, because it was three cars. <laughs> you know, that's not much. But I was interested because it was Lingard's first proper test leading into his rookie season. And uh, minus the Pagano phone issue, would have done something with Simon that day as well about his first Meyer shank test. So we'll do something there. But point being is on average, I'm going to want four five, six cars at a test to really make it worthwhile to go and get the times and write the story and talk to a few people and find out what did or didn't happen throughout the day, who spun, what kind of issues might have been had. So I feel like we're already doing this. So I don't know if I really need, folks to publicly report uh from the tests on their own because for those limited numbers of folks like myself left on the planet who are still indycar reporters it's kind of our job and i know at least from what you find at racer.com we've been doing this for many years brother uh all right uh fragility v3 from reddit i asked for this to be carried over 
to uh, this week's episode and I totally failed to really do any real digging. Asking about, say you're a longtime listener, I would definitely appreciate that. Uh, and also saying you're the first time questionnaire. So I love that even more when we have folks who send in questions for the first time and hopefully keep on sending them in. Can't get to every question every episode, but uh, do appreciate you uh, mentioning this is your first. You said kind of random, but what was up with Takuya Kurosawa's brief cart run with Dale Coyne? How come he didn't end up with the Toyota team instead? Can't really find too much information about the whole deal. Um, <sighs> I'm going to do this. I just I wanted to acknowledge this because you said it in last week. I intentionally held it over for this week. <sighs> I'm cutting and pasting your question, and I'm sending sending this over to the coin team, asking for them to help with a proper answer about Takuya's indeed far too brief time. So my fault. I suck, uh, but I hope, I promise, I have something next week's show, th third attempt. Oh, boy. I'll get it for you, I promise. Uh, also nice of you to wish the best to my wife, Shabrell, and our cats. Uh, you said you were uh, taking care of your dad and his cancer, but unfortunately lost him recently. Oh, man, I hate to, hate to hear that. <sighs> Thanks for sending us in, though. I will do you better because uh, I don't deserve you uh phil co-star hey guess what said you've been listening for about six months it's been interesting well i that's a interesting description uh phil you also mentioned this is uh, the first time you're saying sending in a question so i appreciate that as well uh you say where do you think chip ganassi is going to sit this year during the races good question um, knowing the structure that they have in place with mike hull being Scott Dixon's strategist for a super long time, uh, knowing that Chip was often uh, positioned with the 10 car, Dario was driving it, uh, others uh, that followed him, and with Polo as well, uh, I would be surprised if Chip moved off of that. Uh, obviously, you have Dario Franchitti who's involved also have Scott Pruitt, Scott, not my brother Pruitt involved as well on the Jimmy Johnson side, Dario, a little bit of a floater, uh, there know that we have Barry Wanzer team manager. Who's a strategist for Palo. Um, not totally sure if we'd see chip move to Marcus's timing stand, uh, or Jimmy's, but I do think we might continue to see him. Uh, with Palo, no, it's maybe not the exact. I actually can't say, but I might not be the exact reason behind the question, Phil. But it's not uncommon to have a team owner working on a timing stand, right? Whether it's doing strategy or whatever. Also, on occasion, you have the securing relationships angle from a team owner. I'm not suggesting that there are any issues with any sponsor relationships between Chip and those supporting any of his cars. But that is a move you see sometimes as well. Big new sponsor, big new driver, big new whatever, or just maybe, I don't know, maybe a contract is up for a negotiation at the end of the year. Uh, it's not uncommon to see the, uh, the highest profile 
person in the team, person who owns it, sitting on that timing stand for the year. So again, sometimes it's because they are helping with race strategy, coaching, input, whatever it might be. Sometimes you get a little bit of the other where look at the face of the person who is directly uh, sitting directly in front of that car, sitting above the big timing stand with the branding from that sponsor. Just sends a pretty strong message of I'm here for you. I'm supporting you. Look where I've chosen to sit in my multi-car team. Uh, our pal Tracy from Twitter at Apex A. TX, I believe that's Apex, Austin, Texas. Tracy, I just put that together, maybe, if I'm correct. Uh, Tracy, a motor racing photographer and someone who made some really awesome and funny uh, images for us last year of IndyCar drivers, Indy 500 in particular, with their spirit animals, uh, the animals that they would uh, want to bring to the Indy 500 ceremony stepping up to the platform before the race. So anyways, got to meet Tracy and her husband at Laguna last year during a vintage event um, while having breakfast with uh, young Patricio O'Ward. So uh, thanks, Tracy. Uh, she sends in something, says, have you heard any chatter as to whether the Peacock streamed races will have as many commercials as the TV broadcasts? Uh, she also says, how much money do you think it would take to offer a commercial-free stream on Peacock or TV. says, I think fans would be okay with paying a few bucks for no more commercials. As much as I love that option, Tracy, I would not foresee that ever happening. One of the reasons any broadcasting company signs a deal with a sporting organization is the hope of making a significant profit off of that by selling advertisements. So uh, that's the whole system. So I can't imagine they would circumvent that and they would probably want folks to pay way too much if they were to ever actually consider that. Um, from what I learned, what I'm told, I shouldn't say learned, from what I was told, I don't mean that to sound too negative, but again, you ask a question, you get an answer, you aren't 100% sure if uh, it's going to, pay out that way, uh, asked a friend at NBC, hey, so Peacock, uh, is what is that going to be? Is it going to be lots of commercials? Is it going to be similar to the way Track Pass was? Chris Ward, by the way, who we mentioned, his daughter Fiona, um, asking a similar question. Hey, will Peacock continue the Track Pass option for commercial-free viewing? Um, would say Tracy and Chris and those who are interested, according to a friend at NBC, uh, they said Peacock's IndyCar product should be exactly the exact same that you had with TrackPass, which was a commercial-free experience, I believe. Now, will that apply to the one race that is streamed and only available on Peacock? Toronto, the 17th of July? I don't know. I would think that would have commercials since it's not something being shown on the good old television. It is indeed only available on Peacock. I would think that would model what they do for the regular races with commercials. We'll have to find out though, but at least for what they 
told me what you had with track pass and how it was presented to you should be 100% carried over to what you will now get on Peacock. And like track pass, you will have what? Every practice qualifying and the races simulcast, I think is what they call it. So, uh, I anticipate seeing St. Petersburg y'all to see how that plays out. And if indeed everything that is said to be the same, just moved over to a different streaming platform. Uh, if that pays, it plays out the way I'm told it will. I know that there was another question, I think, in the racer mailbag about, hey, what grade do I need of of Peacock um, uh, account to get IndyCar? And I'm even forgetting what it's called, but the uh, Peacock uh, Prime or Premier or whatever the top level of Peacock is, it's like, what, five bucks a month, I think, maybe? Um, It'll get you that plus all kinds of other... Uh, sports and yada, 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 yada. Uh, I'm fortunate, I guess, being based on the West Coast, uh, having Xfinity Comcast as our cable provider, and as part of what we pay for cable, we get Peacock Platinum Plus, whatever the top level is for free. So that comes uh, as part of uh, our package. So there you go. I just said a lot of words that start with the letter P. Okay, where are we heading to? Next, uh, Stuart Arith. Marshall, you asked me to throw this question back uh, in the hat a few weeks ago, and it's been a few weeks. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, what's happening with Carlin this year? Says is hoping for the plucky British team to pull through, but I'm losing heart in that happening. Has the merger with Hunkos hauling or racing happened, or is it going to? Uh, let me stop there, answer that part, and then move on to the last little bits. I'm hoping in the next week-ish, two, something like that, Stuart, to be able to answer this definitively. And hopefully when I'm able to, there will be a 100% clarity on what is going on. I think you will see some very familiar faces and maybe equipment and you name it from Carlin. What it's going to be called or not called the how all this thing works from a business standpoint uh that's the part i'm waiting a little bit of time on to get a full answer i think i have genuinely 99 percent of the answer maybe even 100 percent. but i asked here in the uh within the last week and was told just need a little bit more time another week or two should be able to uh get that answer solidified by then um, you also ask, would it be a double British driver team with Hunko's Hollinger's Callum Eilat, who's been signed, and then Carlin's Max Chilton, or will Max not be back in 2022? That I feel comfortable or confident in answering. According to Ricardo Hunko's, their plan is to enter a single car for the entire season. I know that there's a desire possibly to do a second car at the Indy 500. The aforementioned Mr. Ilot will be their full-time driver in that single full season entry. So that would preclude a second full-time entry or even part-time entry for young Mr. Chilton as well. I 
know for a fact that Ricardo Ricardo's angle on running a second car at the 500 has never been about, I just want to run two. It's been, if we're going to do it, let's do it. Let's seriously have some, uh, something significant taking place there. Uh, a big driver. Now, granted he's with, uh, Aaron McLaren SP for a second season during the month of May, but think of someone like a Juan Montoya, right? If Junkos could get a Montoya-esque driver, whomever, big name, race winner, or similar, someone that's going to bring fire, hot fire, and hopefully meaningful Indy 500 experience to the team for Callum, who will be a rookie, that's been the approach. There's a lot of experienced drivers they could look to put into a second car. That's not the issue. It's more a case of this has got to be something that has a bit of wow factor. Max has gone very well at Indianapolis. I just don't know if I would say Max would fit Ricardo's mindset of we want a, whoa, did you see who they got? I should reach out to Max. I don't know if he'd want to talk, but I should reach out and just get a feel for where he is at as to whether his IndyCar career is over in his mind or if this is something that he is wanting to or able to continue. Not totally sure. Um, I know for a fact that he was not limiting himself to driving for Carlin in 2022 and beyond. Said as much in an interview with me. So... Unless he is sniffing around and, and has something on the line somewhere else, I don't know if I would plan on seeing him, but I will certainly make a point here to reach out and see what good old all caps M-A-X Max uh, has in mind. I'm going to take a sip of coffee here. Jamie Carr, you said... Uh, some of my crew were telling me about NASCAR's policy affecting a person's ability to earn and support his family. I should also mention the Day, somewhat silly folks there. One, of, I don't remember, Ryan Terpstra, I don't remember how it happened exactly, but mentioned something about uh, being the boss or whatever, and I jokingly replied saying, yes, I'm, I'm Don Don Cannelloni, which was Dom DeLuise's uh, mock mafia boss name from i think smoky and the bandit too <laughs> so just a really dumb reference to a dumb character in a vaguely popular car chase movie from the early 80s then all of a sudden i start seeing tons of questions coming in from prude members for this week's episode referring to me as don uh cannelloni so anyways so now all of a sudden We've got a number of kind of bad Godfather mafia-esque angled questions. So bear with me here. Uh, Jamie Carr, Don, some of my crew is telling about NASCAR's policy affecting a person's ability to earn support his family. Does IndyCar think the same way? Is there a way for the capos to sit down to discuss an amicable arrangement? Or uh, someone just told, forget about it. How do they get clipped? Uh, translation are there rules about sponsorship official or unofficial with a process to discuss uh no not that i'm aware of 
there's the general best interest to the sport type clauses that gives IndyCar the ability to say yay or nay to anything, uh, not just sponsorship, but anything that they don't feel is in the best interest of the sport. Um, the only time I really remember this getting a bit of attention is in the earliest days of the Indy Racing League towards the, uh, the the latter stages of the 90s with the IRL. Now, there was not a 100% uh, exclusion rate. I believe the tobacco brand Montana was on, like, I don't know, was it a, a Hemmelgarn entry, whatever it was. But Tony George, for example, uh, really made an effort to make sure that while tobacco funding was still giant in cart at that time with seemingly every tobacco brand uh, as the primary sponsors. Note that the IRL really did not go down that direction. And it's not as if uh, there were lack of opportunities. And I know the Penske cars there for a little while definitely um, had the, the colors and such but of Marlboro, but not necessarily the Marlboro branding. But that's the only thing that comes to mind a little bit here, Jamie, of you know the founder and, and boss of the IRL and Indy 500 really wanting to make sure that tobacco branding was not the big thing taking place in his series. And so uh, he definitely leaned on some folks to make sure that uh, his wishes were complied with the vast majority of the time. Beyond that, I mean... I know, what was it, 2018, 2019 maybe at Indy? Um, we had the Schmidt Peterson Motors, Aero Schmidt Peterson, was it called at the time? Uh, before Aero McLaren SP, the year before that, I believe, uh, there was a CBD drink sponsor. I think it was, I genuinely am forgetting, was it Hype or something like that? Um, an affiliation with a really amazing running back from the Denver Broncos. Mr. Davis was there. They did a little presentation at their garage. That was cool to see. Um, But there was a definite kind of couching of things, Jamie, that, hey, yeah, this is new to IndyCar. It's not marijuana. Uh, it's CBD-based health enhancement, restoration, drink, et cetera, et cetera. IndyCar has said they're willing to work with us on this, but they're really maybe not wanting to see this huge, giant splash branding all over the car. It seemed to be managed quite a bit from the series side, and I don't recall if we saw much come of it afterwards have to see how that plays out. Uh, The sensitivities of those who own or run racing series tend to be the things that do indeed govern um, your uh, Brandon What's-His-Name non-valuable collectible uh, crypto NFT, whatever that thing was meant to be, that didn't have any value, but you could buy it and it would benefit him. Um, That went down to NASCAR. Uh, It just tends to be the stuff that they're really worried and concerned about. 
what's the the pressure point of the day that they fear that oh well if that gets in everyone's going to say we're terrible and we'll no longer want to watch and then we'll lose all kinds of corporate backing and everything's going to collapse it's a general statement but that's the mindset um i don't know if it goes that much deeper than that Uh, i am totally unaware of name whatever team signing a a full season sponsor and having to submit that sponsor that sponsor as someone acceptable to sponsor the car and then their livery is being acceptable to indycar not at all there's also one thing to to close here jamie that's a bit of a common sense thing every team would know if they have something that would be considered pushing the limits of comfort with the series in terms of a sponsor uh you know an adult magazine or a whatever whatever um that's a thing where you go hi uh i I bet you're gonna say no but you don't you certainly are not gonna want me to spring this one on you that we've signed this thing that i know you all would absolutely not want to see on our cars I'm positive that more than once every year heading into the new season, those phone calls or conversations take place where a new sponsor, maybe from an area that folks are uncomfortable with or from some lifestyle segment where you go, yeah, that's probably not going to fly, whatever. Uh, I'm sure these calls take place, but I don't think there's many of them because fairly straightforward types of sponsorship uh, avenues are the ones that we end up seeing on every car uh peter nutt friend from holland asking is there a backup plan for saint pete say tickets seem quite affordable for once but hesitant to book if it might get moved some assumptions in here i assume you're referring to omicron taking off and florida being just i think still the the highest number of of new daily infection rates and whatnot is there a backup plan for St. Pete? I don't know. I don't think IndyCar would have something in place already, assuming, predicting possibly that coronavirus and whatever variants are raging along uh, could put St. Petersburg in jeopardy of happening, either in terms of having fans or just happening at all. It's one of those things where obviously you've, need to hear what uh, the county and the mayor and the others might say as we get closer to an event Um, but i will tell you this i have had conversations with folks at indycar and imsa in the last week where this exact topic of oh i wonder if this is going to kick us back to where we were in 2020 where there were shutdowns whether it's just overall shutdowns or non-essential event shutdowns. Thanks. I know you want to hold a concert. You want to have motor racing. Nope. We're not going to do that. I don't know if any of that would happen, obviously, but I do know that it is something that both series have told me, of course, waking up every day, reading the news, seeing the headlines. There are concerns just too early to answer Peter uh, as to whether it would get moved, but 
as we've seen IndyCar do two seasons in a row now, if adjustments have to get made, I'd say they're, they've become fairly adept at reacting uh, to whatever they have to do. All American from Twitter, at Amerborn00. Hey, MP, how do you rate the job Penske and his group are doing since taking over? I'd have to say I'm pretty darn impressed. The one key difference is a how can we make things better and then act upon the answers to those questions that is taking place and has been taking place. This isn't meant to be a cheap shot at the Holman George family. It truly isn't. I know that they're easy to take shots at, but that wasn't them. That wasn't their vibe. Clearly, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, I mean, utmost importance to them. IndyCar as well. Assets, though, that were being managed. Managed, trying to keep costs down, profits up keep the legacy in place, have everything just functioning and operating well. No major feeling or sense of, hey, it's a brand new day. What can I do to improve these properties? Just wasn't the vibe. So knowing that, we have a pretty cool and amazing thing of Roger Penske, Penske Entertainment, Doug Bowles at the Speedway, Mark Miles, Jay Fry, so on and so forth um, on, the, uh, on the series side, who really are waking up every day saying, hey, what can be done that is better? And I'm not saying everything that teams want to have happen is happening or will happen, but there is just a very different vibe. And so when you have someone like Roger who is always striving for perfection, always striving to get better. It's amazing how that filters down uh, to every aspect of what he touches. Obviously, there's plenty still to do. Plenty still to do. Rattle off a couple things that maybe are are well-known, highly known, but they still stand out as the main things that need to get done. A little bit surprised that Roger, with his vast connections to the automotive industry and relationships, that we are still awaiting the confirmation of a third manufacturer. Uh, more to talk about that here in the near future, but feels like this is something that uh, should have been done and signed and announced and then used massively to promote the IndyCar continues to be on the rise. We've got a third manufacturer that's in and use that as bait to go get a fourth and get more corporate sponsors and so on. Like that's something that I'm a little bit surprised still kind of, it feels like a pitch that's just thrown right over home plate should have been knocked out of the park. And we're still swinging away trying to hit that sucker. Race for equality and change. That's something that I would have to say maybe falls in the, uh, I'm not too sure where to place that or where to, what to think about that. Um, the impression given when that initiative 
was announced in what July of 2020 was this was going to be something powerful, something sustaining, a ladder, a true ladder to bring kids of color, young boys, young girls of color, you name it, move them into the road to Indy and on up, hopefully to IndyCar, a, uh, an academy. Did one season with Miles Rowe in USF 2000, dropped him, dropped USF 2000, jumped straight to Indy Lights with Ernie Francis Jr. Love me some Ernie Francis Jr. Likely repeating myself here, I recommended (laughs) Ernie Francis Jr. to Roger uh, last summer. He didn't know who he was was on the phone with him, was like, look, you really need to consider this kid. Either the, a day before or a day after, whatever it was, uh, our pal Willie T. Ribs spoke with RP and said the same exact thing. So the two of us were telling him, like, look, this, this kid is farther along than Miles, but still has a lot to learn. Surprised for sure that any impression of this being an ongoing and sustaining, quote, ladder to develop young kids of color, create a more, create more equality and change, seemingly has been dropped for hitting the fast forward button to get straight to Indy Lights. Um, haven't had the chance, because this isn't something you necessarily just do over the phone. This is a, an in-person conversation to have with RP. Uh, of what are the true goals for the race for equality and change here. Because if it's just to expedite getting a, a black kid into the Indy 500, and that's really it, that's not a race for equality or change. That's a race to fill a demographical void. So that's a question mark to me here, All-American. Um, that might be one of the, one of the only major negatives that lands with me. I'll spare you the long conversations Willie T and I have had about this. Uh, but yeah, so that's something we're scratching my head a bit going, I'm not sure if, if the looks of this are, are flattering, but I'll ask RP directly and get a feel after that. Every team needs more money, wants more money. Could use more money. Are there more sponsors that can be found for the series to hopefully increase the leader circle contract and what that pays out to each team? There's a couple of the areas where actively monitoring them because between getting a third manufacturer in and easing the bottom line for the teams, since none of them have ownership stakes in the series, there's no charters, there's none of those kinds of things where you go, aha, that's a valuable asset to, to build. Um, these are all independent businessmen and businesswomen who are seemingly having to find more money every year to keep going. How can the series, since it already does help, improve that help financially? So there you go. That, that's what comes to mind. Thanks for asking, by the way, and thanks for uh, joining in here. Hitoroki 2 
It's Marshall. Question about the relationship between Ray Holladum and Lanigan and Alpine. How did it all happen? How was the relationship made? Seems to have come out of nowhere. As I think I recall reading, some of y'all may have read it as well, it was either Alpine reaching out to RLL President Piers Phillips or Piers reaching out to Alpine. Uh, it happened there. I don't honestly remember. I don't really care, to be honest, which way the outreach happened. Just more important and pleased that it did happen. Um, says, is this a relationship that will continue uh, much like how Williams Formula One sent drivers to Ganassi in the late 90s to the early 2000s. I mean, there was there was some collegial stuff going on between Williams and Ganassi, but it wasn't so much of a like, hey, we're going to send you our drivers. It was a, what vacancies do we have? Don't we have? Um, does Ganassi have some availability? And hey, here's a bit of a convenient thing where, yeah, uh, maybe your driver can, you know, pick up some knowledge um, even while an F1 seat is not exactly open for them right now. I have no clue if Christian Lundgaard, the driver at question here, is meant for a future seat in the Alpine F1 team. I do recall that Alpine has a lot of young driver academy signings right it'd be one thing if alpine had one and his name was christian and they were sending him to indycar i think we would then say yeah it looks like this is very much of a a grooming and tuning you up while we don't exactly have a vacancy for you but um, we're going to be yanking you back here to do uh to do some grand prix driving for us uh in the coming years do i think that if Lundgaard goes out and wins a number of races and looks like a serious badass at Alpine would move him to the front of the list? Probably. That'd be smart. But again, they do have a number of young drivers um, in their academy to make me wonder how direct of a pipeline it might be for Christian to get to F1 through them. Bigger question. I don't have the answer to, but it's something that I am indeed thinking about. And that is, let's say he has an amazing year or two. Does Alpine keep on, you know, committing roughly half the budget or whatever the exact number is? Do they keep coming out of pocket for him to be an IndyCar? Um, if for whatever reason they decide that F1 is not where he's going to land, would they just keep? forking out half a budget each year or whatever it is to uh, continue in the RLL entry? I don't know. Is there a point in time, since RLL seems to be pretty darn good at finding sponsors, where if for whatever reason the relationship with Alpine comes to an end, Christian's doing well enough for them to say, we are not letting you go, that they're able to go out and find all the funding on their own to say, hey, you're 100% ours? I don't know. Uh, but those are the kinds of things that wander through my head. Uh, thanks for sending that in. Chase and Akiri from Facebook. Sorry for the long post. Not a problem. It says, regarding Gavin Ward's move from Team Penske to Aaron McLaren SP, you don't hear about championship winning race engineers leaving Penske very often. Just writing about this for that little catch-all story coming. Uh, it says, we're both sides looking elsewhere. 
got a couple other items on this topic you mentioned here. From what I understand, and for what I've written here uh, on Racer, this was very much Gavin wanting to take the next step in his engineering career. And having done lots of race engineering in F1 and IndyCar and had a lot of success, just at that stage in his career, in his life, where he said, hey, I kind of want to take the next step up. Nothing against, no issues whatsoever with Joseph. Like, there's no problem with the the number two Team Penske Chevy program. Just time for me to aim higher, do more. To my understanding, there wasn't that opportunity for him at Team Penske. Roles are filled. Uh, We're not just going to create a second position doing the same exact thing. We already have someone else. Just his desire, it sounds like, did not end up being matched with what they had to offer. And lo and behold, uh, Aaron McLaren SP, Craig Hampson, uh, who's in the technical director role there, turns out, once again, from what I understand, he was actually pining for a return to just straight-up race engineering. Kind of a perfect put your peanut butter in my chocolate kind of scenario in the Reese's Pieces that was uh, spit out was Gavin saying, well, cool, I kind of want the job that you don't really want to have to do anymore, and you want the job that I don't really want to have to do anymore, and all of a sudden you have two of the best engineers in the IndyCar paddock aligned on the same team. Uh, Gavin fitting right into where he wants to go, Craig going back to where he finds has found the most enjoyment and success. And then you add Will Anderson, Pato's race engineer, who is young and awesome. And I think is the, this trio uh, of Gavin, they're not really calling him the technical director. I don't know what his title is going to end up being, but that's basically what it is role-wise. Gavin overseeing Craig and Will doing the race engineering. Um, Blair Pershbacher, who was the race engineer in the number seven entry that Craig is slotting into. I'm told that he's still part of the team, will be working within the engineering group. I just don't know exactly what role yet. Um, That's that's a lot of firepower there. Um, You ask, could Penske have blocked the move? I don't know. I wouldn't pretend to know what contract Gavin did or didn't sign. Obviously, if Aaron McLaren SP is announcing they've hired him, I would uh, kind of assume that that was possible. Otherwise, they wouldn't have announced it. Um, You said, generally speaking, when a team hires a rival team's personnel away, does the former team get compensated? No. Uh, No. Uh, This is a case of and I, again, I'm not speaking specific to Gavin and whatever contract, because I don't know, but just in general, if you have a non-compete for three months or this month or however long, uh, or if you have anything saying uh, if you decide to leave the end of your contract, you can't work for another team for some long duration, uh, you would not expect that person to go and work for another team until that was satisfied. If a person is leaving a team at the end of the year, 
in going to another, keeping in mind that this uh, confirmation from Air McLaren SP happened, you know, a couple days after the new year, it suggests a person's contract went through the end of the year uh, and they would then be announced after the new year. So again, assumption, but that would stand out a little bit here. Uh, but no, there's there wouldn't be any compensation uh, whatsoever. Um, and I think that kind of covers just about everything that uh, that jumps out here, Jason. Thank you. Uh, the Flash 947 from Reddit. Hey, MP, related to all this New Garden, Ward, Penske stuff, is the Chalice of Excellence still a thing among New Garden's crew? Uh, when I asked about it last year, like around this time, the guy asked Joseph, he gave me kind of a non-answer answer. So I think it got put away. Uh, you said, can I tell you, can I give you a hint on who's driving for Penske in their evaluation test next week? Um, I don't know. I haven't asked. I will. <laughs> I'm laughing just because it's like, yeah, it's absolutely in my pl- among, within my plans. I apologize for not having that answer right now, but genuinely my mental to-do list has, I think like 16 things I need to finish before I get to that. Uh, you also say, I want to mention how much you enjoyed the off the grid video on new garden that went up on any cars, YouTube channel the other day. Uh, that's the sort of quality content they need to be putting out. Awesome. Didn't see it, but I'm taking your word for it. Uh, let's see. Ryan Terpstra, Don Cannelloni, sir, as the new Don of IndyCar. Come on now. Uh, we know everything needs your blessing. Okay. See, uh, brother Matthew's son, little Matty, uh, is going to do Indy lights and, uh, and me and the fellas, we're doing some wondering. It's been a couple years for Matty. Is there anyone you want us to uh, pay a visit to, to help the guy out translation? We are translating another Don Don Cannelloni question is Brabham the favorite for the lights title. Uh, we're going to find out. You'd think that someone with his vast experience would shoot straight to, into that role. You would also think that driving for the dominant-ish team in Indy Lights, having won the last three titles in a row, although this past season's was you know fairly tightly fought between uh, GRG, HMD, HMD, GRG, whatever, uh, and Andretti, I would have to assume that Matty is going to be establishing himself as the Andretti front runner. Maybe not the first race, maybe not the second race, but um, you know, he, he's got his open wheel chops that he has to build back up again. It's been a while. Hearing rumors that uh, maybe, maybe, maybe Linus Lundqvist could be headed back. And provided he's headed back to Indy Lights and it's with uh, HMD, GRG, GRG, HMD, I would have to say that Linus would be the pretty clear number one um, pick. If we're talking title odds, but that would be uh, that would be a pretty fascinating thing to see how that goes down between Maddie, between Linus. Who else is going to jump out? Right, Stingray Rob. I think gave a good account of himself last year as a rookie with Hunkos, but moving over to Andretti, there's definitely something there to follow. Um, there's a, a decent amount of young talent coming in. Pretty heavy number of rookies, right? Uh, so 
I think that's going to help filter out a lot of the true title contender uh, talk. So I'm going to say that if Maddie isn't the champion or second, I'll be very surprised and disappointed for him. Because I think if he ends up being second, third, whatever, fourth, I don't see how that leads to anything bigger afterwards uh, with Andretti. Uh, James Malloy says, hope all is well. Congrats on your 49ers making the playoffs. Uh, since it's cold as heck here in Kansas city, I'm wondering what is the coldest air temperature an Indy car could theoretically run in, uh, 23 degrees, James. I have no idea, man. I mean, <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, I do know that IndyCar Firestone have come up with, uh, 100 degree formula uh, where they want track temperature and ambient temperature to add up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit Celsius. Now that'd be interesting. Uh, Fahrenheit before cars can run. They aren't exactly stuck on. It has to be a minimum of 50 track and a minimum of 50 ambient. Uh, It could tilt a little one way or the other, but I don't know. I mean, I maybe the better question is, why are you curious about this? What is, what is the thing that, that you want to know from a performance or, or whatever standpoint about what's the coldest you could possibly run? Um, I don't know. It's not one of those things that most teams are trying to find out. I can tell you from a practical standpoint that I've been at some tests in the past where it has been freaking frigid. Like put on your winter coats and gloves and put on your beanie, like, you know, thermals and unit and right. And it's not great. Um, saying that because you tr- make the effort to go somewhere. It's not supposed to, um, You're hoping that when you plan to go test and you spend money and you make all these travel plans, whether you're flying, driving, or whatever, that all that effort and money is something where you go, okay, we're going to go here and test, and the forecast at least says it's not going to be snowing. Uh, Maybe it's not even going to be raining. It might be a little bit cold, but it shouldn't be too bad. And then you get there and find out that things have changed. Like nobody intentionally goes and tests where things with an Indy car or indie lights are similar where you go like, Oh my goodness, this is like icicles almost. Sometimes you do get there and find that when you booked it and planned it a week ago or a month ago or whatever, um, it is colder and less hospitable than you hoped. It's a bit of a judgment call of, okay, so it says ambient is 43 degrees and who knows what the track temperature is, but it's not going to be that high. We've come this far. Let's see if we can get anything done. So I do remember a couple of those in my past. They weren't fairly productive. Drivers tended to be pissed. Uh, Like the good thing is once you get going and running in an Indy car or similar with side mounted radiators, uh, those will keep you a little bit warm. And I do recall whether it was me or another crew member grabbing Uh, packing blankets and kind of stuffing those into the cockpit to make sure that uh, not only the driver stayed warm while we were you know down uh, waiting to do the next run making whatever changes 
but also to make sure that the heat from the radiators was uh, maintained uh, so they stayed toasty. But you do get into some real strange situations that make you question whether you should keep going or just take the loss, pack it up, and go home. And that is, if it is really cold, you're going to have tires that, by and large, are not getting adequately warmed. If you know you're going to be racing at that track or tracks like it, and it's going to be twice as warm as it is during that frigid test, or three times, or whatever it might be, the whole reason for doing this, and again, I'm talking testing, is to gain meaningful information that would be applicable for when it's time to go racing at that track or tracks like it. And if you end up getting a bunch of information that you go, hey, we just came up with the best setup ever for a car in 43 degrees, you're not going to be able to use that when you come back because it's just, right, not going to happen. So that's the overarching thing here what's usable, what's not. So since we know IndyCar has its own limits as for minimum temperatures before its cars can go test or go race, um, you have to look at the big picture here. And so I do recall a couple times where you go, well, let's at least see if we can learn something. And you go, whoa, these this car is almost undrivable. Tires can't get up to temperature. We could bolt a bunch of wing into it. But again, that's just applying more downforce than maybe we would ever consider using. So therefore that doesn't apply to meaningful knowledge and, and setup info and, and chassis feedback we'd get. So yeah, I don't know what the true minimum number is, but I'd say the biggest guide here is does this have value for when we come back? I think it was 2020. Uh, I forget. might've been 2019. Uh, Laguna Seca was a, a misting, a light misting of rain. Um, I think it, it was just overcast and cold the whole time. Uh, I think the rain kind of stopped, the light rain stopped, track dried enough, and pretty much every team went out, got what they could. It's another aspect of the, we've come this far, right? There are no IndyCar teams based anywhere near uh, Laguna Seca uh, out here in the West Coast. They all came this far. Uh, the track was, quote, usable. They tried to go out and do some running and see if and what they could learn. The Foyt team was the one that set up everything on pit lane, was ready to test, and I think made a pretty good call. They said, you know what? We really need these test days, right? Not only do we not have many of them, it's the same for everybody, but this is a team that not like they're blessed with an abundance of money and engineers and right. If we're going to go out and test, uh, we can't really afford to, to lose anything. And they said, you know what? Uh, we're just going to have to eat it, eat the uh, expenses, but we're going to pack up, save this test day for some other venue later in the year and make sure that we don't burn one of these precious dates because when we come back here in September or whenever, it's not going to be cold and raining. It's just, right, just not going to be happening at Laguna. So since nothing we can learn today is really going to be valuable when we come back, we're just going to elect to not run. So I respected that. We're going to Jerry Suddeth. How you doing, Jer? Say hello to your family, my friend. This is vague 1980s IndyCar question here. 
Melbag question recently about the March chassis powered by Alfa Romeo and the March Porsche made me curious as to which had the better potential if further developed. Uh, would say that would be Porsche for sure because uh, of the two manufacturers that engaged March to make chassis for them. Uh, Porsche did indeed win a race. Um, I mean, Alpha was a poop show of the highest order. Famous story that you might have heard of uh, the uh, Patrick Racing team, which had used a Chevrolet prior to uh, signing with Alpha, uh, sent one of those prized Ilmore Chevys to Alfa Romeo. Alfa Romeo effectively copied that Chevy engine, which was dominant. And not only did that make for a not happy relationship between Patrick Racing and the folks at Chevy uh, going forward, but it didn't turn into a winning solution for Alpha. So yeah, how about that? Hey, uh, we kind of copied all of your intellectual property. Copied is a nice way of saying air quote allegedly stole. Uh, hey, we've copied your motor because ours was hot garbage. And so we should, in theory, be equalish to you. And they weren't. Not really even close. Better than the, the pure alpha design uh, that they had beforehand. But yeah, uh, didn't get them all the way there. The Porsche engine, pretty much from the outset, Jerry, um, always regarded as very stout, very strong. The issue here, so the answer is March Porsche compared to March Alpha. It's the one with the better potential, better results, better everything. The main issue here, and it's not a real issue like March was lacking in some great way. Separate from a big and, and controversial rule change in 1990, where initially... March was going to be allowed to introduce a full carbon chassis, the first full carbon IndyCar chassis. And that was then overturned way too late in the game. Our friend Tino Belli, IndyCar's director of aerodynamic development and occasional listener to our show. If so, hello, Tino. Uh, excellent race car designer. Uh, Tino and that design team were forced to scramble, uh, come up with a carbon top, aluminum, honeycomb, bottom tub, uh, weight issue, like that decision by cart, which again, I think was garbage. Um, it really tanked their, their potential for the year, but the year before in 89, Teo Fabi won Porsche's one and only IndyCar race, uh, at mid Ohio. Um, if you strip away the garbage rule change and the this and like just let's talk about the car the engine and the potential and the manufacturer the constructor i should say the one negative is they were basically fighting an army of lolas at that point and also penske chassis with a one car granted i realized that we had both a march alpha and march porsche running at the same time but totally different programs they're you know enough differences to make it where you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, well, it's like there's two identical marches competing and therefore we're getting double development to help improve this chassis. It's pretty much two separate things going on, two separate swim lanes in the March Alpha thing was, yeah, not so much of, yeah. 
That was the main issue here, Jerry. Uh, when you've got 5, 10, 15, 20 Lolas competing, uh, development, improvements, optimization, it's going to happen at a much faster rate. When you are effectively the one boxer in the ring, <laughs> uh, well, you've got a Royal Rumble, and it's you against 25, 27 others, uh, boy, uh, that's that's a tall task. So Fantasyland, if uh, March had three March Porsches, if Porsche, I should say, had commissioned uh, enough cars and had a big enough program to run two, three, four, five. Now, granted, there were two full-season March Porsches, but again, I'm just talking one team, one effort, not something where we really saw um, a wide variety of marches on track. I would again hope maybe uh, Porsche powered, but even if they were Chevy or otherwise, if there were a lot of vehicles on the ground running and a lot of data coming back to March, that's where you would see, uh, say, more competitive effort being able to be waged. All that being said, the cars were still darn good. Uh, just the uh, proverbial David versus Goliath, and uh, Goliath did not get knocked down in that final season in 1990. All right, we're going to rock and roll through the last items here. Wario Andretti says, whenever certain people like Centino Ferrucci get a ride, people say IndyCar needs villains to root against, and I sort of agree but it needs a Hollywood Hulk Hogan, not a Jeff Jarrett. More wrestling references. I love it. Uh, so my question is, what makes a good racing heel? Or uh, with how careful drivers need to be because of their sponsors now, is it even possible for a driver to be a villain in racing? Hmm. Love this. The latter is the issue here. Hi, we have a lot of corporate people. Uh, you're going to be going into the hospitality suite at the speedway or to our hospitality bus at the track. And you're going to talk to the sponsors, uh, the husbands and the wives and the kids, and you're going to take photos and you're going to do all these things and all the, all the behaviors of being invited over to your, uh, husband's family for Christmas or wife's family for Christmas or whomever's for something big and ceremonial, celebrational, whatever. And you're going to be in your best behavior and you're going to wear a sweater and smile the whole time. That's the general vibe you're going to find at, I don't know what, 95% of the teams on occasion. You'll have a little bit of a rock and roll outlier, right? Maybe a, a Connor daily, mullet flowing DGAF approach to whatever. And we love that about him. How many Connor dailies though, do we have an IndyCar? And even he isn't going to be out there saying F you and you stick your this and your that and bought it. Right. That's those limits. So there's a little bit of the fun natured rebel, but not a full rebel that is accepted. So with all that being known, Hmm. it makes it darn near impossible to have that real heel in IndyCar today. Where, where things 
could maybe find a middle ground is that, oh, there are definitely drivers who could play that role. And not full bore, F you, whatever, like still have to be a little bit wholesome and humble. But there are plenty speak your mind opportunities. There are plenty, I want to go down and shove that driver. Not punch him, but just shove that driver. Maybe even knock him down, right? And again, I know that's physical aggression, and some folks these days think that that's the end of the world. But hey, I am really super mad and demonstrating it in a physical way, and we are athletes in a somewhat physical sport. Uh, and so, hey in other sports they tackle each other and bang into each other and you name it and so i know that's not what we do but at least maybe some will say oh boy well you know uh not too far from what we see in other sports and okay wow we know that person's really mad at the other like that has kind of become like oh my gosh could you imagine if that were to happen uh even like that's extreme and that's compared to having seen more than one uh, fisticuff events break out uh, in the pits, in the paddock, you name it, between drivers, between crews over the years. Not saying whether I've been in any of those, just saying I've seen some. Like that decision could be made probably once a race weekend, if not two or three times by various drivers who feel that they were done wrong by someone else in a practice qualifying a race they choose not to do that out of fear out of repercussions sponsor with this uh we've asked for driver so-and-so to be released because of their behavior does not uphold our values and morals and blah 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 so right so there's that side we have to consider as well that's changed the sponsor that's kind of fun natured and like yeah hey this person's a loose cannon don't fire cannons at people but we're we're good with everything up to that level i don't see many if any of those left as well right so that's the comfort right that's the if the sponsor is not going to freak out if i say some crazy outlandish mean aggressive things if i get a little pushy and physical with another driver like am i going to get dropped today's culture would suggest that that's almost an instant ticket to being shoved out the door. I'm talking IndyCar. I know NASCAR is still a little bit different, blah, blah, blah. I'm just talking here, what we got here in IndyCar. Um, so since I can't think of any sponsors that would condone such a thing or not act in a way where the driver was going to be reprimanded, uh, parked for a while or dropped. Therefore, the team owners would not, condone such a thing therefore you don't see drivers being real heels what i'd like and i'm talking over the top not everyone would get it like sarcasm and overt like subversive humor uh doesn't always land with everybody and to understand that's what they're seeing like um the colbert rapport for example on comedy central back in the day love that show because it was such an over the top clearly this is not who this person is he's acting like an ass for humor i'd love to see someone kind of take that wrestling persona that way over the top being a heel but a heel with a little bit of a wink a little bit of a nod wink wink right i'm not really fully the heel but just some bombastic 
you know, give me the mic, brother, when they get out of the car and rip this driver, that driver. And it may not be a driver who did anything wrong, but just lay into them. Truly turn into someone who is giving WWE wrestling style on the mic promos when they get out of the car and not so cartoonish that everyone's like, Oh, you know, just being a ham, you know, you're just being a ha ha ha. But like, get into it, be that character. I don't know who would do that. I'd love some feedback on if we think there's anybody in the series that could properly pull that off. But that's the one thing to me that always was sad with Ferrucci. And it's that I think he had that ability to be that character. In reality, he had a lot of drivers who really didn't care for him. Nonetheless, I think he had the ability to go way over the top, way WWE promo, let me tell you, brother, and get after it and rip down other drivers and have a lot of fun and just be constantly viral, (laughs) just constantly making stuff that people want to watch. And maybe folks hate them, but at least you go, man, I I cannot turn away from that. I got to believe there's maybe that middle ground there. Just going to take someone with a unique personality to do it. Who? Who, who, who? Uh, Daniel Summerskill. You say Don Cannelloni. Uh, Mr. Jimmy Johnson is doing a full season. Where in the championship standings do you expect him to finish? And with his success in the NASCAR ovals, could he win a race on an oval? Uh, Also, any news on Tony Kanaan for, say, Texas, Iowa, Gateway? Heard nothing to suggest Tony will be driving for them at any event other than the Indianapolis 500. Um, Could Jimmy win on an oval in IndyCar? Of course. (laughs) Of course. Uh, He has Indy 500 race-winning engineer Eric Cowden, who won the 500 with Tony Kanaan, um, looking after his vehicle. So, yeah, good Lord. Scott Dixon on the pole last year for the Indy 500. The team... Fast on the ovals, obviously, uh, with, what, one win at least, but just in a very general sense, they were competitive, I think, just about everywhere. So take a guy, one of the most accomplished oval racers ever, stick him into a team that's really darn good on the ovals. I'd almost be surprised if we ended the year, Daniel, without Jimmy getting his first oval win. Uh, where does he finish in the standings? That's one that requires a little bit more scratching of my noggin. I expect Jimmy to be more competitive on the road and street courses. Obvious statement alert there coming into his second season, going back to places that he knows he's going to be faster for sure. Who all is he fighting against? It's another good question. I don't know who all is going to be towards the back of the field, but I think he should have a easier time running ahead of some of the drivers that he struggled to really outperform on a constant basis. If we said IndyCar has no ovals, where does Jimmy finish in his sophomore season? Knowing that, again, he skipped the four oval races last season therefore points wise he wasn't you know really in the mix if we just said hey road and street courses that's all we're doing where would he finish 
20th, 18th, 20th, 21st, somewhere in there, maybe 22nd out of the 25 full-time cars. Throwing in the ovals and where I think he can succeed, Indy 500 being double points. No, it's a total crapshoot. You know, who can say who's going to finish, who's not, whatever. If he can have some decent oval finishes, I'd see no reason why we wouldn't take those, stack them on to improved performances everywhere else, and say 16th, 15, 16, 17th in the field should be something he's capable of doing. Just mention here, I know that finishing 17th, 16th might not sound like much, but our dear pal Sebastian Bourdais, who did every round last year, finished fifth twice, had what, I think four, five top tens. He finished 16th. Granted, that's for the Foyt team, which really, you know, uh, bottom bottom team in the series. Ryan Hunter Ray didn't have a great year by any means. Seventeenth, right? Um, I think that's possible for Jimmy. I don't know if I want to say much more than that is uh, really something to expect. Daniel, we're gonna have to see what kind of Jimmy rocks up at St. Pete at Long Beach. We're going to know by the first three races. That I can tell you. Um, For sure. When we see him get through St. Pete, get through Texas, get through Long Beach, that's going to tell us a ton. I mean, we might rope in Barber, which is the fourth race, the first natural terrain road course. But I think we're going to see something that's pretty darn good. I just think it'd also be a little bit over the top to expect that uh, Jimmy's going to be running P10, P12 everywhere all of a sudden. Uh, I, I Lemur from Reddit, getting us uh, winding down towards the end of the show here. Uh, they're professional spies. Uh, every race, every team, spying on each other in F1. Is there spying going on in IndyCar? And are there any memorable spy stories? Uh... Yeah, but you'd probably be disappointed at uh, how non-remarkable this is in IndyCar. I pay attention to this maybe more often than not during the month of May, walking up and down pit lane, taking some of them photographs. It's always interesting if you kind of know the people. I'm not just talking about the crew members. I'm talking about a driver and, say, their wife, girlfriend, whomever, mom, dad, family, cousin, whatever. Just get a feel for the entire uh, entourage in and around each entry. It's also then fun to know that it seems odd when you see a person that you go, oh, wait a minute, aren't you kind of from that group over there? But you're not only 10 pit stalls down, but using your, you know, little handheld compact zoom whatever camera that you got or maybe you're just your iphone or whatever and trying to zoom in there and get some photos um it's those things that i enjoy looking for and see not all the time but you know somewhat often kind of wing angle being used 
I see they're doing a damper change. Uh, let's go try and get some photos of that. You know, it's a nephew, it's a niece, it's a someone that with a credential to be on pit lane with that credential turned around or tucked out of sight. So if their name happens to be printed on it, it is not readily seen that it's so-and-so from team X. Um, what are you doing over there? And again, that's, those are the things that stand out. It's the person that's out of place when a car is somewhat exposed body, some body work off some work going on, whatever, um, that would not stand out to the team. They're taking photos of, uh, right. Someone that just kind of blends in and looks like, uh, one of the many fans who get credentials to be on pit lane beyond that. There are professional, many professional photographers, some who have contracts with manufacturers, with teams, with manufacturers and teams, with whomever, where without a doubt, there are requests that go out from clients, whomever those clients might be. Hey, uh, would really appreciate if you got some photos of this team, this car, this whatever on track, on pit lane, might be looking for some photos of this, that, or the other. Uh, have to be very subversive about doing that. And so, yeah. Um, I recall one team, and it's not like a super memorable story maybe, but uh, and I have a couple others. Maybe I'll share some other time. Not a big deal, but uh, I recall one uh, a race engineer from one team stopping me on pit lane saying that their team manager boss whatever was very mad at me for some photos that i posted on the internet and these are of cars fully uncovered no rules against photographing them covered or uncovered but photos like free anybody can take them if you're sitting in the grandstands, have a zoom lens. You too can take the same exact photos that I did. But that person, boss, team manager, was super bent out of shape because some of the photos that I posted or uh, went into a gallery happened to have, you know, the front wing of one of their cars and uh, another team could look and see what the angle was. And another one was of this, which might have given that away. And I'm like, what do you want me to do here? <laughs> I mean, I'm not spying on anybody. I'm taking the photo opportunities that are presented to me and trying to either entertain or inform um, or interest IndyCar's fans. So I don't know what to tell you here, but you do know that like, Photographers come to these events. Uh, television networks come to these events. They bring big, large video cameras and they film on pit lane during practice or qualifying or whatever. And then during the races, they got a bunch of cameras around and they televise what's happening. And those cameras zoom in as well. Like you do know you're doing this in front of people, right? 
And they have these wacky recording devices that either fit into their pocket that they can talk to or dedicated cameras that you go click, click, and they take still pictures and others take moving pictures. Like, what are you on about, man? Um, so anyways, uh, I just thought that was a little bit precious. So anyways, uh, if I was trying to spy on somebody or spy on a team and posted some of their photos or filed some of their photos as part of a photo gallery or whatever about the day's session reports, like, uh, it's not going to be just one car from one team. It's going to be multiple teams. And if anything, spend less time complaining to me. And if you're saying I'm giving away your secrets, well, uh, spend more time looking at other people's stuff because if you think everyone else is going to learn what you're doing from the photos of your car, maybe you could learn about what others are doing with theirs. Or, and this is what I was really getting at, maybe you're just mad because some of these photos you're complaining about having been taken of your cars are the same exact ones you've actually been paying someone to take of others so you could spend the rest of the day looking at spy photos. So, anyways... Fun times. Uh, Steve Sell, you mentioned here on the theme of supporting Cooper Tires. Says, I didn't have a question, but do have a comment. Our Subaru Outback was in need of new tires. Purposely sought out and bought. New set of Coopers uh, due to you and the show and Cooper's support of the show. Love the tires and all the best to the family. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Andrew Campbell, curious if Firestone might introduce a medium compound tire to go along with the alternate and primary. I would say 100% not. Uh, I only ever hear about budgets being more and more restrictive. So the idea of Firestone adding something with cost and complexity, which would then cause lease prices to go up as well for the teams, I would imagine that's not going to happen. Um, Ed Joris, you're curious if oval racing outside of the 500 might be improved by going to... Uh, the primary and alternate tire routine on short and medium ovals. Eh, improved. It's a, I don't know if they're required to run on one or the other uh, at some point or both at some point in time during the race. And one turns out to be not great. Then I don't know if that improves racing, but um, it's an interesting one. But I think since we're talking ovals and ovals tend to breed high speed, and pretty hard impacts. I don't know if you're going to get any teams or drivers saying, yeah, let's, let's go away from what is working perfectly right now. William Matson, I love it. I always know these, uh, these questions are going to come in. Uh, has there been any rumor about BMW looking at joining IndyCar? So since they are building a customer experience center at IMS and they are partnered with Ray Hall, Edmund Lanigan Racing and IMSA, seems like a logical step. Uh, as Roger Penske told me, uh, they, being BMW, are not building the uh, center. Uh, IMS is building that building, and BMW will be leasing, renting, whatever the deal is. But that will, again, going based on what Roger told me, uh, no one's building a building within IMS that IMS doesn't own and control. So, uh it sure would be a weird way for BMW to decide to become an engine supplier in IndyCar by first doing a customer experience center at IMS. Um, seems to me that if they really wanted to, they would announce that they're doing an engine program. But I can tell you with 99.9% assurity 
that since BMW is doing a factory GT program that's brand new here, kicking off with RLL in a couple weeks at Daytona, and then leading a factory prototype, brand new factory prototype deal, hybrid prototype deal, with BMW starting in 2023, uh, I can't find any single reason why BMW would then add a hybrid IndyCar program, uh, knowing that they're doing pretty sizable investment in sports cars uh, at the same time. Uh, let's see. I, I lemur, you're back. Says, what is miles Rose situation for this year? Uh, said seeing the GoFundMe account that he has kind of bummed me out on the implications. Another note that I'm dropping into the, uh, catch all story for Thursday. Miles tells me he's going to be able to kick off and do at least first half of the USF 2000 season while looking for more money to keep going afterwards. Uh, Kyle Ray, does MP pretend AJ Allmendinger stays an open wheel through the merger? How many championships and 8,500 wins does he have? Who's he driving for? Says so just rewatched the uh, 2006 Champ Car season. Incredible, seeing him hop into the Forsyth car and dominate. Yeah, he was pretty darn good there, wasn't he? That was always a thing, right? Imagine if he had started off the season in that car. Would our French French fry be a uh, four-time consecutive Champ Car title winner? Don't know. Um, I do know that AJ obviously pushed him pretty darn hard. Yeah, the whole merger thing, if we're playing fantasy, it's pretty hard to figure out because Forsyth wasn't one to uh, to keep rocking along and do the uh, IndyCar series thing. Um, do wonder if he'd been hired by Penske that soon. Uh what, 2013, I think, is when he uh, started doing some races with RP and IndyCar there. Got to believe that if he'd stepped into Penske right after Champ Car fell apart, slash with him not going to NASCAR, yeah, I, I do think we're talking uh, he has at least one or two championships. Don't know about 500s. Again, that's always such a variable, but I think he would have been excellent. Do I think that he would have continually taken down Dario Franchitti and Scott Dixon at uh, Ganassi. Uh, Will Power having to deal with him, you know, Power's best years and such. Uh, some of the really strong Andretti lineups. You know, what I miss is the opportunity to know because while I do think he would have won a championship or two in a good top team, I don't think AJ knocks all the others down and dominates the era. Uh, Kevin Frederico, you're wanting to know about salaries of ancillary personnel in IndyCar, and you mentioned one, two, three, four, five, six, seven-ish. Yeah, um, love it, brother. But that's <laughs> that's not a uh, week in IndyCar listener Q and A question. That's uh, that's a two thousand word feature. Uh, Steve Grinstead, MP. I hope your ear and teeth are on the mend. Yeah, you you and I harbor the same wish, Steve. Any more team and driver announcements before St. Pete? Yes, still waiting to find the fate of the uh, Road and Street Course driver that'll slot into the number 20 Ed Carpenter Racing entry. Uh, there's also a little mention of that in the uh, catch-all piece that I'm filing. Jake Sullivan asking why there's no night races uh, for the most part in IndyCar. Um, I don't know. Uh, my guess is... Those aren't necessarily the slots that NBC are wanting to use IndyCar to fill. Uh, Hrisha Despond, 
Love your question here. You say, Don Cannelloni, couldn't help but noticing in your RLL engineering article that Mr. Tom German is now at Toyota Racing Development. Now, I know you can't divulge any confidences, but would it be a safe guess that uh, TRD made him an offer he couldn't refuse? Maybe involving a new engine. Man, we're just wearing out this Don Don Cannelloni thing, aren't we? Uh, well, let me then give you the old-timey voice then. Yeah, see? Tom German, see? Knows a lot about racing, see? Isn't just limited to IndyCar, but certainly would say the specialty's IndyCar. So why then, see, would he go to a manufacturer like TRD if he was not going to do something related to IndyCar? I don't know, see? Doesn't make a lot of sense, see? Can't tell you that I know anything definitively, Hrishi, but I can tell you this. Uh, boy, a lot of race engineers reached out, texted, you name it, um, saying, huh, didn't know where Tom went. Now that I know that he's gone to TRD, I guess that's, uh, we can at least take that as an encouraging thing. How's this? Uh, I've heard nothing to say that TRD is going to supply engines. Truly, I've heard nothing to say a decision's been made. Yes or no. If I was a manufacturer that was seriously considering it, wanted to onboard someone who, boy, he's been crazy smart, won Indy 500s, uh, championships, all those things, turbocharged eras, uh, worked with, Big teams, Penske, Andretti, Ray Hall, you name it. Theory has a lot of knowledge about all the tracks you go to and just every aspect. Yeah, see, it's kind of higher out, Mike, see. Uh, Andrew Henderson, love to know if there are any ongoing discussions about a return to the Northeast. Uh, I've heard nothing about it, brother. Uh, I'll keep asking, though. Uh, let's see, where do we wind down? John Sable, always love it. When I get a John Sable question, uh, with car counts going up and things feeling generally positive in terms of serious health, team spending going up too. Been a handful of timing stand moves. So curious if team owners are digging deeper into their pockets. Overall sense, John, yes. Um, would tell you that with the testing rules being what they are, uh, the majority of learning about the cars performance, vehicular dynamics, all that kind of stuff. It's taking place in virtual worlds or off-track testing scenarios, you know, the proverbial seven-post shaker rigs and so on. Um, those things require smart people, and smart people aren't cheap. And the more restrictive the on-track testing becomes, the more off-track testing that you end up doing. And so as you do more of that, you need more of those smart people and more of the systems, hardware, software, and otherwise, uh, to support all of that. So, yes, costs are indeed going up. Uh, more and more people uh, are needed at every team. And it's by and large on the performance end, right? It's not like, well, we need three more mechanics per car. No, I mean, the, the cars are still pretty straightforward, but definitely on the engineering side, uh, yeah, a lot of big brains. Uh, and so that's costing more money. We have these hybrid engines coming next year. No one knows what the price increase is going to be on the engine leases. 
but everyone expects to pay more. Uh, we don't have a final price on what the upgrade costs are going to be per chassis, but we know that that's going to be something teams have to brace for, right? And so it's not just the, oh, well, that's a two-car team, so they got you know a couple cars upgraded. It's the, hey, you're a four-car team, and you've got 10 Delarty W12s. Well, that's 10 upgrades. That's a lot of money. So, yes, uh, going back going back to the teams need more money. Hopefully, Penske Entertainment will find more sponsors to add more to the leader circle contracts. Like, it ain't getting cheaper, my friend. Um, just trying to take a look here through the last couple before I say farewell. Um... Jason Hatfield, how you doing, buddy? Says, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Tell me news on Connor Daly or you'll have a new pair of concrete boots. Uh, Connor Daly is sexy. That's news. Maybe it isn't. I apologize. Uh, Peter Nutt, you're asking if I've heard from our French fry about how many team owners he drove with that own vineyards. Um, forgot to ask him. Um, why don't you at him on the good old Twitters if you haven't already? Um, I mean, I apologize that I've, you've asked this more than once and I've forgotten. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't have to be your conduit. I think you can ask him directly and I would hope he would answer. Uh, Lance Snyder wanting to know, asking the great and wise Don Cannelloni, who do we have to feed to the fishes to get led panels on Indy cars again? I think you have to feed me. I think that's the answer. Uh, yeah, Chris Ward again. Don Cannelloni got to ask chicken parm or linguine with clams asking for a friend. Uh, clams are disgusting. So chicken parm. And if I use my impractical jokers references, gorilla parm, whale parm, etc., etc. Yeah. Clams are disgusting. So how, why would you even ask that? Uh, I think we're just about done. Jamie Rowe. Uh, says, can't wait to read the story that I'm sure will answer my question from last week about the future of Vassar Sullivan, uh, but understand why you can't answer that yet. Thank you. I appreciate you understanding that. I don't want to make up stuff and tell you non-answers or lie when I just can't share what I know or have been told. So I appreciate that you appreciate we're trying to be straight with each other here, Jamie, not me. Just uh, I'd rather not than give you a mouthful of nothing. Uh, says I'm a Colton Herta fan for the 500 last year. He was suddenly in the top 10. Um, then on the last pit stop fell to 16th says you cannot figure out what on earth happened to him. Can you shed any light on this? Uh, send that in when we have him on the show next time. I think I have an answer for it. I think I might've posted that I think in my post Indy 500 rewind column. So that might take a little bit of searching on racer.com Jamie, but Give that a whirl, and if you don't get the answer, uh, direct message me or something, and I know that I have the answer somewhere. Uh, my brain is just not the type to really clasp onto those kinds of things long-term. Uh, last question here is going to go to our pal Riley Stricker. This is Marshall. Uh, Ilmore, they do Chevy's IndyCar engines. Um I was wondering if you knew as to why there's no Ilmore stickers actually slapped on the Chevy powered cars. Well, I don't have a direct answer. I just have a, what 
would make most sense to me answer, and that would be they are a contractor. Uh, Chevy hires Ilmore, pays Ilmore. They are a service provider. Since these motors are Chevrolets, badged as Chevrolets, and promoted as Chevrolets, uh, I would not expect to see Ilmore stickers there. Silly little sidebar here to close. Back when I was running my own racing team, little sports car endurance racing team, had a nice factory deal from BMW to run to build and run two diesel, two BMW 335Ds that were imported from Germany. They weren't legal here in the U.S. on the road, uh, but wanted to demonstrate their ability to go endurance racing. Um, good budget to do all that. Hired a local racing shop slash fabrication specialist outfit to do just that, uh, install the roll cage and do the, you're right. A lot of the, uh, turn these, these stock road chassis into race cars. And one of the things that was a bone of contention was this was my program. This was a BMW factor, true factory BMW USA factory program, uh, being run by me. So just as you see, on the RLL BMWs, you'll see RLL badging on them. Not giant, but just clear who's running this program. That's the same thing that I had on those uh, the pair of 335Ds. Became a bit of an issue with the fabricator, fabricators, though, who I paid for their services, right? They were a subcontractor of the team outfit that BMW contracted to run, it became this real weird thing of they kept saying, well, where's our sticker going to go? I'm like your sticker's not going on. The name of your company's not going on the car. That was never our deal. These cars belong to BMW. They've hired me to run them. I have some branding on the rear wing end plates basically, but like you would see, you know, again from an RLL, but, uh, you know, not much more. And it became this real serious issue with them. So similar-ish to what we're talking about here about Ilmore and Chevy, the difference being is that while it's normal for the team running the factory program to have a little bit of branding on the thing, um, not really the case when we're talking about engines because Chevy wants clear sales and promotion branding of their own. No question as to what these motors are, whose they are, etc. We know in the industry that Ilmore builds them, but since this is a true sales and promotion thing for Chevy, uh, that line isn't crossed. So the conclusion to the BMW story, though, and I really was not pleased with them, but uh, again, they just decided to be dicks about it. Um, unbeknownst to me, shortly before the race, um one of the two fabricator slash company owners there uh, crawled under the back of both cars and slapped their company's name uh, on the back of the fuel tank that was installed. So while it wasn't super visible, definitely some of the photos that I saw after the race 
of the car cresting over a hill that had their company's name on it. Like it was just it's one of those things that just made the end of the story something that really did not make me happy because they were pissing and moaning about it the whole time the car was being built. Then BMW sent over their livery for the car, what they wanted, how they want, like, right. And so it's my job to have all the graphics made exactly how they want them. I'm just following a menu of what goes where making all of it, but you know, having all of it made, but, um, and they just refused despite being paid for their services. And despite being told, no, this, this, I sorry, but this is not about you. And I don't know why you can't accept this. Um, they wouldn't let it be. And so, uh, managed to sneak, uh, their stickers backside of the fuel tanks. Uh, so maybe we should see if Ilmore could sneak a couple onto uh, some Chevys and see how that would go down. All right. Thanks y'all for everything you sent in. I don't think I'm going to do a, a guest episode this week. I don't know why. I'm just not really, well, I know why I'm not feeling that awesome, but going to try and do one or two uh, catching up with. Um, already spoke with Levi Jones, the new director of Indie Light, so I'll post that here. Speak with Matty Brabham, do one with him, maybe Pagano as well. And I don't know, maybe I should have mentioned this towards the beginning of the show when more of you were listening, but I think that's the one major addition or change I'm going to do this year with the podcast. We're venturing into what our fifth, sixth year, I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, we've done 1,200 plus episodes. Kind of comes a point where you're like, okay, um, let's do something a little different just to uh, spice things up a bit. So I think that spicing up is just going to be doing more of the short 10, 15, 20 minute interview length at most, shorter form interview, catching up with shows. And maybe I'll do that some weeks instead of having a IndyCar guest Q&A episode. Um, tired, y'all. <laughs> I'm already tired and I just had a vacation. So, uh, But that's a plan. So thanks for everything you sent in. Thanks to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com. Definitely check out prudayrocks at gmail.com if you want to join that group and have some fun and bench race and get to uh, make some new friends and maybe attend an IndyCar race or two with some of them. And other than that, I will look forward to speaking to you next week 